0: To be with you all this evening at this Lessons and Carols service. Uh, we're telling a story tonight. Looks like I'm going to have to keep holding this up, so I'll do my best. We're telling a story through biblical texts and through stories, and it's a deeply relevant story for uh, all of our lives. It's relevant because it addresses the depths of our sorrows as well as the heights of our hopes and our joys. It addresses our reality. And it addresses our dreams. It's a story about the darkness and devastation in our world that touches every single one of us in one way or another. And it's a story about a God-sent king who overcomes the darkness to create a new and better world that we all deeply long for. We've just heard two readings from the prophet Isaiah. These readings were written a little over 700 years before the birth of Jesus that we celebrate tonight. And they speak a word of hope into the darkness of exile and foreign oppression in the time that Isaiah was ministering. In chapter 9, verse 2, we read, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep, deep darkness, on them has light shined. And in eleven one, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The stump, a stump is the opposite of fruitfulness and of strength. It's a sign of of, uh, of defeat and of barrenness, of hopelessness and of despair. To appreciate the light in the story that we tell tonight, um, we must first see and acknowledge the darkness. And not just the darkness back then into which Isaiah spoke these words, but the darkness now, the captivity of our world and oftentimes of our own lives to sin and evil, to suffering and to injustice. And it's really not that hard to see the darkness unless, of course, privilege blinds us from seeing it. We think of Syria. I was uh, recently struck and and moved by a 60 Minutes story on the Syrian refugee crisis through the lens of the World Food Program, the immense suffering and pain that's going on from people uh, and the use of starvation by Assad's regime uh, in the act of war to blockade ...besiege villages and keep any food from entering. We think of Iraq and Afghanistan, of the fact that people who live there... ...live in perpetual fear of violence and disruption to their hopes and their normal lives. Tonight, as we come to an offering, in a little while, we'll have the chance actually to support... ...and give directly to a group, a small group of Afghan believers... ...who were attacked uh, by a bomb. Several of them were killed... And if you're on our email list, you saw some news about that this week. We'll have the opportunity to give directly to their needs. So all is not well. But of course, we can come much closer to home in thinking about the darkness to the most prosperous and arguably also the most generous nation in human history to see the darkness here in our midst. Here's how Mark Bittman began his op-ed piece in the New York Times yesterday. The police killing unarmed civilians... Horrifying income inequality, rotting infrastructure and an unsafe safety net, an inability to respond to climate, public health, and environmental threats, a food system that causes disease, an occasionally dysfunctional and even cruel government, a sizable segment of the population excluded from work and subject to near-random incarceration. You get it. This is the United States. Now, obviously, whether you agree with his assessment or not, it's a time... In our country at the moment, that despite the wonderful things that we can and should affirm about our country and what we're doing here and around the world, all is clearly not well on the home front. The darkness is here in our institutional structures, in our police forces, in ongoing racism, and in our neighborhoods. It's not just here in our country, but it's also here in our lives, in broken relationships, in unrealized hopes in self-harming addictions, and in, a selfish, uh, in selfish habits and orientations for most of us. Some of you are here tonight and you're dealing with personal circumstances that squelch every bit of hopefulness that you've ever had. You're living through periods of intense darkness personally. And you probably are wrestling with what is the way out. We are, all of us, Christians or not, we are in this world of darkness. We deal with captivity and we desperately need the light to shine. We need the light to come in. We all know that we need this in one way or another. Even in the midst of that darkness, our human heart knows a kind of hope for a better world. We've talked about that some over the fall and looking at Ephesians. All of us have a longing for justice and for beauty and for peace and for equality and for joy. And there are moments in the midst of the darkness that we experience in our lives where the darkness seems to fade away, the veil seems to lift, we fall in love, or at a wedding, or at the birth of a child, when we hear an inspiring speech, or when we hear a story of someone who did the right thing in spite of things being against them. These are echoes of Eden in our own hearts, the things. Um, that we know somehow intuitively from a distant land, things that we want to be true, things that we seem to have a collective memory of and a collective longing for as members of the human race. But the question is then how do we get out of the darkness? How do we get out of the darkness to this world that we all deeply long for in one way or another? Now everybody has an answer, everybody has a solution to this question. Politicians, economists, psychologists, educators, community organizers, religious gurus, and so on. But the story that we're telling tonight, this biblical story, gives us a different answer. It gives us a solution that will come about from God himself. In thinking about this question, so where does the solution come from? I can't help but think of the words from the prophet Zechariah who said, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. God will do this by his spirit and the spirit will do this through a king, a spirit endowed, just, righteous, faithful, worldwide king, a king given to the nation of Israel in order that he might be the king, not just of Israel, but the king of all the world. The government shall be upon his shoulders, as Isaiah said, and of its increase, there shall be no end. This is the king that's the subject of the two prophecies and passages that we read in the book of Isaiah. And who is the subject of the New Testament text that we will continue on in this service to hear. The story that we tell at Christmas time is not the story of a cute little harmless baby born in a manger outside of Bethlehem. Though it is that in one sense. But it's, it's the story much more deeply of a king who enters a broken and dark world and who himself is the light that shines in the midst of that dark world and who's come to bring and put the world to rights once and for all. So who is this king that enters the darkness? Isaiah says four things about him in Isaiah 9 verse 6. This well-known text, well-known probably mostly because of Handel's Messiah. He is the wonderful counselor. Now, these words don't indicate that he's like your therapist, only much better. On the contrary, they imply and are are full of military strategist overtones. This king is a military strategist and a brilliant one at that. He's a king with a strategy, a king with a plan for worldwide conquest and worldwide renewal for the riddance of the darkness and the embrace and flooding of the world with his light. That brilliant strategy of our king confounds the wisest of this age for he came unlike any other king not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die on a Roman cross, the cross of his enemies and thereby defeat the powers of darkness and to rise from dead and take the rule of heaven and earth at the right hand of the father. And his ongoing strategy Of conquest is through his people. Through all those who come to him by faith. Who bear faithful witness to him in lives of love and service. That in this way his worldwide conquest of light over darkness will continue. This is a king with a plan. A brilliant plan. To undo his enemies. He is mighty God. We get the same word for mighty when we read about David's mighty men. In the book of 2 Samuel. These were mighty warriors. And what this means in Isaiah 6. Is that this king doesn't just have a plan. But he's a mighty warrior. Who will fight with the very power of God. To accomplish his brilliant strategy. To execute the plan. You know we tend to think of kings and generals. We don't think of kings all that much anymore. Um, But we tend to think of generals as those who stay on the back. Of the battle. They stay in the safe and and protected places so that they can continue to run the war. But in ancient times, kings, good kings, always were on the front of the battle. They led their armies into the fight. And the king that we celebrate in this story that we're telling tonight is a king who didn't stay in the background, but a king who came in, who engaged his greatest enemy who fought with Satan, with evil in the wilderness. He wrestled with them in Gethsemane, and he prevailed over them at the cross of Calvary. And he calls us and arouses us to follow his lead as a mighty warrior, but fighting not with weapons of this world, and not against peoples of this world, but against the rulers and the powers and the authorities in the heavenly places. He's everlasting father. Father was a term given to royalty in the ancient world. And therefore to kings, it might be better to say everlasting royal father. This is the king whose dynasty is not a flash in the pan. Like some kings throughout history. But his royal status continues on forever. Everlasting. Which means this. That he is eternally capable of offering the kingly care, protection, and provision that good kings and good fathers offer. He is a safe haven, a mighty rock, and a strong tower for all time. And he is these things especially for the oppressed and for the poor, Isaiah tells us. For those whose rights have been overlooked and who have become expendable in their culture. And this obviously has great uh, relevance for the conversation that we're going to have later tonight about race in the midst of our world. Not an easy conversation to have. Jesus' everlasting kingdom is a kingdom defined by justice. Perfect justice. We read that he doesn't decide upon the evidence that he sees, as a grand jury might do, but with righteousness and equity. He's a king that can see into the heart of the matter perfectly, without any obstruction in his view. And he will judge and rule with fairness and and equity in a beautiful world. We need him now more than ever. And Isaiah says lastly that he is the prince of peace. Note in chapter 9 verse 5 how the battle gear and the blood-stained clothing, the military garments, are used as fuel for the fire. We get this image throughout scripture, but we get it here in these texts. His reign ushers in the end of violence and bloodshed that continue to mark our world and even our relationships. In chapter 11, we see the picture of a peace filled new creation where the curse has been repealed, so much so that the child can actually now play with the serpent, put his hand on the serpent. The peace that arises out of his just rule and out of the knowledge of the Lord that fills the earth. As the waters cover the sea. Is this peace that we all deeply long for. And that we know that our world desperately needs. So into the darkness... And not just Isaiah's darkness, not just the darkness of the 8th century B.C., and not just the darkness of the 1st century when Jesus came into the world, but into the darkness in the midst of our own lives right now, into this darkness, Isaiah proclaims, and the story that we tell tonight proclaims this hope of a king, a king who's got a plan, a king who's got power, a king who will provide protection over the weak and the needy and the oppressed, and a king whose rule will bring about the peace for which we all hope. And long. This is how we will get the better world. And God, it says, it will be accomplished through the zeal of the Lord of hosts. God has done it now, and He's done it in His Son Jesus. As we'll go on to read in a few minutes, the angels announced to the shepherds the good news of the great joy that is for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This Savior is the fulfillment of Isaiah's great words of hope and comfort to the people of God. This Savior is the one who brings the light into the darkness. So it's a story that addresses our situation. It's a story of great relevance. It's a story that addresses our heartache and our deepest hopes. And as I close, it's a story that calls us to response. We're called not just to admire and not just to adore and not just to worship this king. But we're called to join him. We're called to come out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. To follow his strategy. To banish the darkness by fighting with his mighty power at work in us. And to do so under his protection and provision. And to contribute to the peace in some small way that he is bringing To this broken and violent world. The people who walked in darkness. Have seen a great light. Tonight we praise him. We praise the light. We celebrate that light. Sing with all your heart. These familiar songs. About that light. And we sing with more passion. And more enthusiasm. Because we know the darkness. But join that light as well. For as we join this great king, and as his life begins to take root in us, then he calls us, as well, the light of the world. Let's worship him. Amen.